This is the Parenting for Faith podcast from the Bible Reading Fellowship. Visit parentingforfaith.org for free online videos and resources and an eight-session course all about Parenting for Faith. You can also sign up for news, subscribe to this podcast, and find out about events and training in your area. Welcome to the Parenting for Faith podcast. My name is Rachel Turner. And I have to say, guys, I'm still in post-Eurovision glow. I don't know if you are Eurovision people or not, but in my family, we are intense Eurovision people. And uh, it was a a good one this year. I I don't think as good as last year, but you know what? There's no such thing as a bad Eurovision in my eyes. So I am still dancing around the house, singing in all sorts of languages uh, and uh, making up all sorts of outfits. So... If you've never experienced the post-Eurovision glow, you don't know what I'm talking about, but it's a thing and it's real. Uh, Before we begin, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about a Facebook Live we have coming up on June 17th. We have two Facebook Lives a month. One is for parents, where I specifically pick a topic and then spend a half hour talking to uh, parents of a specific age group. So we take a topic and then apply it to zero to fives, and then a half hour later, five to elevens, and a half hour later, teenagers. And uh, so far, we've done things on sleep, and so far, we've done things on beauty and manliness. And on the 10th, Monday of the month, which is the Monday, if you say the date and it ends in a teenth, it's usually that night. So this month, it's going to be the 17th, where we spend a half hour deep diving into a particular topic. This month's topic is on how to make faith and God actually nailed down to reality. So often, it can feel like our faith is sort of floating on the side and then our kids experience reality and it's hard to tie together the two. And we're going to talk about how we can proactively tie together their faith and the nitty gritty of everyday life. So join us on June 17th. This episode, what we're talking about is one, what do we do when our child's view of God is that he doesn't exist? How do we cope with a child absolutely refusing that he is real? Uh, The second thing, the question we're asking today that I'm going to answer is about feeling out of depth to help children with social media. And our wild card section is our friend Becky, who is on our team at Parenting for Faith, and she has some wisdom she's gleaned from having carers living in her home that is actually really useful for us to think about as spiritual parents. But first this, a parent got in touch about a session in our Parenting for Faith course where we talk about unwinding wrong views of God. Now, often our children's view of God can go off on a tangent and it impacts their connection with him. In the course, we talk about a few of the many, many, many ways children's views can be skewed. And this parent asked a great question. What do you do if a children's view of God is that he doesn't exist at all? I'll read from the email. Especially in secular schools, our children, as I expect you know, are in an atheist-favoring environment where RS teaches that all religions are equal and are an accessory to life rather than at the center. So my key question is, from a children's point of view, this God you've taught me to believe in, I'm not convinced he's real at all. Backed up with a sense that in our sophisticated society, most people have realized that he isn't. So her her child is a teenager and is, is dealing with all of these really intense RS questions and has sort of come to the point of thinking, well, 
you've taught me to believe in a real God, and I'm not convinced he's real because of all of these logical reasons uh, in a sophisticated society where faith is. And how do you combat that really strong feeling and narrative from the world? I just wanted to take a second to unpack this question. From my view, which may not be right, it is that while there are many reasons a child ends up with this view, be it a child or a teenager, it generally, and I hate speaking generally, but I'm just going to generally fits into two categories. One, a child can get to the place where they say, oh, I, I'm not convinced that there is a God. One, because of a lack of relationship. And if it's because of that, this child is unsure how to have a relationship with God. There's a general sense that God may exist, but they feel totally inadequate to create any kind of connection with him. What does he look like? Where is he? And when? And why can't I hear him? And if this is where your child's struggles are, then helping him or her see people around them doing this authentically is important. Giving them skills to do it themselves and places to talk about it is useful. Plugging them into a community of people who are creating windows, framing, unwinding ideas about God when they get stuck. Helping your child connect to God in their own way and surfing the waves of the rise and fall of their spiritual lives with them is all helps. All of those tools that we talk about in Parenting for Faith, it can be that often when a child is saying, God isn't real, it's more God isn't real to me because I don't know how to do it. But the second sort of direction that may be causing a child to say God doesn't exist <clears throat> is what I want to zero in on today. If it's not lack of relationship, it often is that the child's personality is of an intellectual wrestler. Now, I don't want you to hear me wrong. Every teenager who's heading into an intense series of RS lessons may need a level of apologetics, a, a level of someone sitting down and say, we know there was a historical Jesus because, or this is how we know that the Bible has been accurately replicated for thousands of years. All of those sort of interesting and important bits of information that show that our faith is not just complete fantasy, but that is, is based on sound reasoning and sound things that we can put our feet on. And there are so many authors out there who who invest in creating that kind of information for children and teenagers. And I'm going to give you some of those places. So I, I believe that every child, as just part of their normal discipleship, they make it through that through church. That may be something that you can help them engage with. And as I give you those resources, you might want to pull in. But sometimes there are children whose personalities are particularly tuned towards intellectual wrestling. This personality of child often needs to understand fully before they believe. Now, this isn't every child, but there are some who like this. And it is helpful to notice when you have a child like this. Some kids can hear the question, where does the dinosaur fit into the biblical timeline of creation? And they're just like, huh? That's really interesting and sort of shrug their shoulders and think, well, I don't know. But I have also known children, I've known one or two in every place that I go, who are like, what? Unless you can explain where the dinosaur fits into the biblical timeline of creation, then all of my faith crumbles and I walk away because this does not make sense. This intellectual wrestler is a 
personally, I believe, a sort of spiritual personality type, for lack of a better word. It can also be a connecting type. Some people that I know feel the most connected to God when there are three books into research reading about theological debates in preparation for a sermon. Their main connection to God comes through deepening and broadening their understanding of his rigorous revealing in all this complexity. They feel like the same deep, long-lasting connection with God as others have, just through a different means. So in a world where RE and BA programs poke at some intellectual facets of faith, some of our kids will be thinking, well, I know he's real because of what he's done in my life, my family's life, and because I know it's true. Others who have the certain intellectual connection type may get shaken to their core. So how do we resource children who seek knowledge? One, let them be them. Connection with God looks different for everyone. If they need to wrestle, then that's okay. Facilitate the next step in their connection with God. Two, don't feel that you need all the answers. Your job is to facilitate them finding the answers rather than give it to them. If you have an intellectual wrestler child, they're going to be asking questions and, and keep circling back on the same things. And it can feel like Personally, I feel like I'm never smart enough to answer all the questions that they have. And that's okay. Your job is not to be the deposit of all knowledge in the world, but you can point, help point them to where they can get that information, whether it's for the book or a conference or wise people who think like them. So your job is to facilitate rather than give them all the answers. The third thing you can do for kids who are really seeking knowledge and love connecting through that is to give them places to investigate and to learn and to argue. There's a thing called the Reboot Conference that Ravi Zacharias's ministry does, which is fantastic. It helps young people really wrestle with the huge questions. And they have incredibly wise speakers who give seminars, who give tools of answering the big questions of faith and life. There's a book called The Case for Christ for Children. That is an, an apologetics book for children. There are authors like Ravi Zacharias, uh, the, he's big apologetics peep. Uh, the website RZIM, they were, uh, he just released a devotional this year called The Logic of God. I mean, they, they are the intellectual wrestlers extraordinaire. Uh, another author that you might want to know about is Amy Orr Ewing. She is fantastic. She's great for all ages, but teens and adults, she really is really on point for. She writes simply but very clearly. Uh, she's written many books. One of the books that I love the title of is Is Believing in God Irrational? That's just the title of one, or one of her books. Is Believing in God Irrational? So if you have a kid who really is down that route, pick up one of those incredible resources by those great authors. There's also a recent website we stumbled across called Encouraging for Faith that explains apologetics for children. Now, as with any website, not, none of us agree wholeheartedly with any approach to anything, uh, but you may be able to find some interesting uh, approaches within it. You may find some really interesting theology of a great spread of theology across it. And there's never a perfect resource. So whether it's these books, whether it's a conference, whether it's a website, part of the joy of having an intellectual wrestler child is to say, you won't agree with all of this, but all of this will spark your brain and help you. And uh, I love that this website has a, a parent had a had a really child who was an intellectual wrestler and so wanted to resource that down to the child level. And so he came up with that. So 
access this information, point them to it as parents, you know, find that and pick those up and, and begin to facilitate your kid doing that. The fourth thing that kids need is to connect with other people like them. Every church has people that have reasoned their way into relationship with God and flourish in that kind of connection. Ask people questions, find them, invite them to dinner and invite them to talk about their journey. If your kid is intellectual, have fun with it. You don't have to be a genius or fit into any structure. You don't have to have all of the answers yourself. Just be you. And if you have a child who's not an intellectual wrestler, access some of these bits of apologetics too so that they have it in their back pocket when they reach it. They don't think I'm completely unprepared, but they know there's a bigger pool available for them should they want to dive in. section this week, we had a question come through about social media. If you have a question that you'd like me to attempt to answer in my way, please feel free to come through the contact us part of the webpage or email us directly. We'd love to hear from you and uh, I'll take a swing at it. Today's question is, my kids are 8, 10, and 13, and even my youngest knows more about social media than I do. I want to guide them and show them how to be wise and keep them out of danger, but I can't see how to do that. Social media can be very scary. There's so much out there and it keeps changing. The first question, well, I think there's a series of questions to ask ourselves when it comes to trying to get our brains around social media. The first question is, am I ready? Often our first question we think should be, is my child ready? But I, I think some of the question is, am I ready? And think through getting skilled up. You do not have to be super savvy, but you do have to know enough to coach your kid through it. It's okay to put on pause your kid's engagement with social media until you feel ready to keep them safe. Care for the Family has a book and an event called Left to Their Own Devices, Confident Parenting in a World of Screens, or grab a youth pastor or older teen and young or young adult and take them out to a meal and ask them to talk you through everything that's on their phone. I've done that multiple times. <laughs> I just said, okay, open your phone, show me what is that thing and what does it do and what are the dangers and they can talk you through it. The second question to ask yourself is, is my kid ready? And as with all things in parenting, just because other kids are using it doesn't mean you have to let your kid do it on any timeline. You get to choose what they engage with and when. Social media is a warped reality. It can remove responsibility and in interpersonal relationships. It creates unrealistic worlds and standards. It opens your kid up to judgment and manipulation and opens up to for them doing that to others, which is horrifying, as well as opening them up to predators. So asking, is my kid ready? And at what level is really important. When kids learn how to swim, we don't just throw them in the deep end. When we think that they're ready to stay home alone, we don't just leave for 24 hours. We teach our kids, we tiptoe in, we skill them up and coach them in it. We give them boundaries and enforce them. The same thing applies to digital stuff. How is our kid in dealing with other people's opinions and judgments, rudeness or opinions? How do they stand up for others? How well do they understand safety and manipulation? Or do they understand what to do when they see something that you don't want them to see or if they see something going wrong for other people? If you think they're ready for the next step, for the first step, and you feel that you know enough to start, then great. If you think they aren't ready yet, then it's okay to say no or to restrict their access as you proactively train them in the skills. 
You are their parent. You are the expert in how your kid is, how their heart works, and how their character is developing. Learning about social media is just information that you can acquire. Parenting your kids through the social media minefield draws mostly on your knowledge about your kids and in giving them skills and safety to navigate something new. So once you know enough about this new realm, you can use your already good parenting to apply to this new area. wildcard section, we're hearing from Becky, who's on our team. She recently, because of her parents' health, has had some carers come to move in. And she, because she's a wonderful woman, is constantly learning. And she has been reflecting on what she's been learning through living with carers that actually really applies to our spiritual parenting. So I thought we'd share. Over the past year, our household has been transformed. My father's diagnosis of terminal cancer on top of my mother's advanced Parkinson's disease, meant that we could no longer cope, and shortly before his death, living carers became a part of our life. We were worried about having carers. How would it feel to share our home with strangers? To have to cater for their dietary tastes? To give up a bedroom, not have the privacy we'd once had? What if the dog didn't like them? Or they didn't like the dog? But we had no choice, and after a flurry of furniture moving and redecorating, our first carer arrived. Since then, we must have had about 15 different carers come and go. And far from being a bad experience, it's been okay. Sometimes brilliant, sometimes a little less, but really okay. I thought that I would feel constrained and frustrated, but what I've discovered is that each carer has brought something to add to our family and our experience. Our first carer, Veronica, brought a calm professionalism into our home and at a time when we were dealing with death was quietly there, providing food and reassurance. Then Alex came along full of energy and laughter, noisily competent and full of great advice about equipment and teaching us how to adjust well to having carers. And since then, we've had a steady stream of people every few weeks. And the thing is, our family is richer for it. We've learnt so much new foods for a start. Amy introduced us to something I think is pronounced quinoa and other vegetarian delights and Maria cooked us authentic tapas and paella. I now know lots about Namibia from Mo and Sal, a medical student, gave me a valuable insight into depression and recovery as she talked about her struggles to complete her course. Marta entertained us for hours with her stories about travelling all over the world as a nurse on a cruise liner. Not all our experiences have been wholly positive. From Ella, we learnt that it's really not possible to run a cafe in Spain while working in the UK. And from Sarah, we learnt that it's really important to give our carers a lesson in driving the electric wheelchair or you end up in A&E again. And it turns out a very high proportion of people really can't make proper tea. But when we've hit crises, another 999 call, another overnighter in A&E, long shifts helping to care for mum at the hospital, the carers have been there, compassionate and capable. It's odd that I've become really fond of this little community our home has become. I do have my moments when I long to shut the front door and retreat into a little bubble of me. But generally, I don't crave the privacy I thought I would. This feels like old fashioned life where someone's always around, helps at hand and you're never alone. You might be aware of current research on children and young people leaving the church. Unless something changes, 50% of the children currently in church won't be there as adults. 
but it turns out there are some really simple things we can do to improve those statistics. The research undertaken by the Sticky Faith Project in the United States discovered that if a young person is part of a church where there are flourishing relationships across the generations, this made a big difference to whether they hold on to their faith when they grow up. It stands to reason, really. If you've only ever known Christians your own age, you don't know what it looks like to be a Christian when you're older. And so you won't know how faith and God works as a grown-up. The beauty of a multi-generational community is that we have pictures of what faith looks like in all sorts of different situations and ages, as well as people to walk alongside you who have been there, seen it and got the t-shirt. I once ran a Bible study group for young mums on a Monday morning in church. After a little while, a couple of old ladies joined it and we became this lovely place where Granny shared stories of their experience with the mums as they dandled babies on their knees. And oh my goodness, is my spiritual life richer for knowing these old ladies. I have learnt how to die well as we walked alongside them as their lives on earth faltered and finished. We shared together our joys and fears about our families. I've heard stories about discrimination that have helped me challenge other people's views with power and authority and tales of poverty and struggle that put my challenges into perspective. And when cancer hit our family... I draw on their stories of how God has been with them and seen them through similar illnesses. As I reflect on our busy household, I wish that I'd invited more people into our family when my daughter was young. A wise friend at church told me something years ago that has been really helpful. She said that when God brings you a new person to join your family, you just shuffle up and make room for them. God didn't design us to live in our little isolated boxes. He designed us to live in community, to learn to jostle along together, share lives together and support each other. So broaden your family. Find those whom God is wanting to add to your lives. Invite them round. Get to know each other. Invest in each other and do life together. Shuffle up and make room. Your kids will benefit and your lives will be richer. And finally, a question to start an interesting conversation with your child. Why did God make smells? Like, I get why he got vision. That's like a safety issue. And hearing. I understand all of that. And touch is really important. Smell always seemed to be like, it's it's a really nice to have. I'm not saying smell is unimportant because, you know, it has to do with taste and stuff like that. But but why why would he make smells? I'm just fascinated. Have a good conversation. Thank you for downloading the Parenting for Faith podcast. A new episode will be released next week. And why not look at parentingforfaith.org to watch the free eight-session course, to get in touch, or to find out about training and events near you. Music.